Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 7. See, I told you, Melvin said like a father who had just told his son not to touch the stove just before he had done so and subsequently burned his little hand. You told me what, I said. I told your hard-headed ass not to get in no group. I knew this would happen. I know, you did. A group is just easier, I said. That's your problem. You always try to take the easy way out. I'm just saying, Mel. In a group, you only have to write half the song. Plus, everyone isn't just focused on me. It's like, oh, this other guy is cool, so the white boy must be okay. Josh, that's stupid. You'll be fine. I know, man. I'm done with groups. See, you're going to learn to listen to me, Melvin said. I know, Dad. Can I have my allowance now? No, but go get my belt so I can beat that ass, Mel said, laughing deliriously. Melvin was right. I'd been in enough groups at this point and couldn't rely on anyone else anymore. I was close to graduating from high school and had only been working on songs for the noses for the past few years. I didn't regret the experience because it helped to inflate my reputation and popularity in the local scene. I had become a better, more energetic performer and my songwriting abilities had grown. And even though it was a little awkward at first, Asim and I managed to remain close friends. I never really planned on going to college. Since the days of 3D, I had dreams of being discovered, leaving school early, and having the record label provide me with a tutor so I could finish my high school diploma. When I was 13, I figured I'd be signed by the time I was 16. At 16, I thought it'd be 18. At 18, I knew I would have to conform and do what was expected of me and my family. Because when you're the youngest of five children and the other four have degrees, you don't much have a choice in the matter. Plus, deep down, I always felt like I couldn't just not go to college. This is what's commonly known as Jewish guilt. I hadn't done very well in high school. It wasn't a matter of intelligence, I just didn't care about things that didn't interest me. I could tell you a lot about who produced which album, what rap group they used to be in, who signed them to what label and where they were from, but I couldn't name all 50 states or tell you what years the Civil War took place. I could ramble for hours about rappers' histories, list every record label in their entire rap roster, but I probably couldn't have even told you what an adverb was. I managed to squeak by with a 2.8 GPA and an SAT score that was higher than zero, but this meant that my choice of universities was limited. Along with UNC Greensboro, I applied to NYU, thinking that if I somehow got in, it would be a sign from the universe that I should move to New York to become a rapper rather than plugging away in the local scene. My grades didn't qualify me, but when the application asked for an essay about the defining characteristics that separated my generation from others, I wrote about hip-hop music and culture and thought it was brilliant. I wasn't accepted, but my gut told me I should stay close to my music constituents back in Durham anyway. Greensboro was only 45 minutes away from Durham. I knew at least 25 people from my high school going there, and it was far enough away from home that I wouldn't have a curfew, but close enough that I could drive home to do laundry. So in August of 1995, I packed up all my things in my new demo tape and enrolled at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, where my older sister Mara had graduated from just a few years earlier. I was convinced that nepotism was the sole reason that I was accepted because my educational credentials were shit. From day one of my very first course, I knew the college wasn't for me. Most of the people I knew from high school were not exactly friends of mine, and I noticed that most of them adhered to what I called the summer camp theory. 
As a child attending summer camp regularly, I found that there were always a few people who would come to camp and reinvent themselves by acting like they had the most spirit, were the most Jewish, or were the most into the whole camp experience, rather than just going with the flow. Generally, these people didn't have a lot of friends at home and knew they could be a brand new person with a brand new reputation at camp just by acting like an idiot and screaming the loudest when our age group did cheers in the cafeteria. College was much the same. People who weren't necessarily social butterflies in high school would come to college and reinvent themselves as booze hound party animals. I had hung out with older guys my whole life and was the youngest of five children, so college peer pressure never worked on me. While everyone else was going to parties in hopes of becoming cool, I was in my 88 Honda Accord on the way back to Durham for the weekend to hang out with my real friends. After a few weeks of being a bit of a loner, a role I had never had before, I decided to venture out and explore Greensboro. The main strip that bordered the east side of our campus was Tate Street. Mara told me about some cool shops there, so I figured I would walk there to grab a slice of pizza and dedouchify myself from what was happening on campus. As I got just beyond the Eberhardt building, I heard hip-hop music blasting from a store on the corner that had a graffitied sign that read Flavor Spot. I was intrigued, but living in such a world of social disappointment that my hopes for anything significant were non-existent. As I walked across Tate Street and closer to the store, I started to recognize the music they were playing. I heard scratching and songs being blended together and soon realized that there was a live DJ in an elevated booth in the back of the store. In my rare entrepreneurial fantasies, I imagined opening a store like this in North Carolina, but had never actually seen one. I crossed the threshold in what seemed like slow motion, and though the store was 500 square feet at best, it instantly looked and felt like a familiar world. It was my first time there, but it was like I had come home. To the right of the entrance was a cash register area, mostly occupied by a large wooden counter almost completely covered in hip-hop promo stickers. The walls were covered in shelves and racks of hanging t-shirts and jeans by Fat Farm, PNB, Hayes, and other hard-to-find brands, but also housed obligatory packs of incense and body oils. There was a three-step wooden staircase on the left wall that led nowhere and served as more of miniature bleachers for people to hang out on. In front of the DJ booth were rare mixtapes for sale. To me, Flavor Spot encompassed everything that I loved and my impression of Greensboro did a complete 180. Once I had wrapped my head around this little nirvana I had found on Tate Street, I began popping into Flavor Spot every few days, pretending to check out the same inventory that often sat for months, but was rearranged on a weekly basis to make it look fresh. Eventually, the owner, Mervyn, began saying hello to me in a less than enthusiastic tone and peace when I left. Often, I would hang out at the convenience store next door to Flavor Spot just to feel the ambiance of the place, too embarrassed to go in for the third or fourth day straight without spending any money. After a while, I started to notice a regular cast of characters stopping by the store and hanging out there. The guys were usually a little older than me, but seemed so cool and comfortable in their skin that I knew that they were Flavor Spot natives. Somehow I knew that if I wanted to make my presence felt in Greensboro as a rapper, I would have to get down with this crew. Hey, how you doing, man? I said to Frank J., the Flavor Spot's resident DJ. I would learn that Frank was from NYC and had an incredible knowledge of music. His job was to keep the vibes going in the store and Mervyn let him sell mixtapes in the back to earn a little extra money on the side. The funny thing was that Frank was having someone buy all the latest mixtapes in New York City and then he dubbed them onto an unlimited amount of blank tapes. He'd photocopy the covers at Kinko's for next to nothing and sell them each for the same $5 he paid for the originals. 
Because mixtapes were so low budget, no one could ever tell the difference. While Mervyn struck me as less than friendly, Frank had a pleasant enough face and seemed approachable. So after pretending to peruse the mixtape wall, I decided to break the ice. Yo, what's that song you're playing? I asked. Oh, that's this kid Omniscience. He's actually from around here and just got signed to East West Atlantic. Oh yeah? Shit is hot, I said. Yeah, Fanatic produced it, Frank said. Who? Fanatic. You don't know Fanatic? Frank said. Nah, man, I said, feeling embarrassed. Oh, really? I've seen you in here a few times. Figured you would have known Fanatic. He's from Greensboro. He's in here all the time. For real? That's dope. I'm actually a rapper, too, I said, trying to sound more matter-of-fact and anxious. Yeah? You got anything I can hear? Frank asked. Nah, but I'll bring you a tape tomorrow. You gonna be here? Yeah, I'll be here, Frank said laughing. I'm always here. Oh, by the way, I'm Frank J. Josh, but I go by what's-his-name. Nice to meet you. What's-his-name? That's hot. Thanks, I said with a smile. So I'll see you tomorrow, right? Cool, man. Looking forward to it. As I walked towards the door of Flavor Spot with feelings of excitement and confidence, I knew that Frank would be my ticket into the Flavor Spot crew. He seemed nice enough, and I knew he would like my music. I mean, who wouldn't? My confidence was so high that I turned to my left on the way out, looked at Merv and said, All right, man. Merv looked up nonchalantly from the paper he was reading and nodded his head with a blank look on his face. Yeah, Merv, I thought. Soon you'll know who I am. The next day, I strutted around campus with my thoughts racing. I sat through class after class trying to listen to the professors, but could only think about how I was going to somehow get down with this crew. I knew I had to meet Fnatic, and who's this omniscience character? Were there more people? Would Fnatic maybe do some beats for me? I didn't know how this whole thing would turn out, but I was determined. As my last class finished around 4.30 p.m. that day, I rushed out of the classroom to find a torrential downpour. Flavor Spot was about a five-minute walk from my classroom, but it was pouring and I was wearing a brand new pair of Timberlands that I didn't want to ruin. Oh well, I thought. Gotta do what I gotta do. I burst through the doors of the red brick building that housed the classroom I had just been released from and sprinted to Flavor Spot, dodging hail and raindrops the size of grapes. When I got there, I pulled the glass door open with all of my might to get out of the rain and hopped into the door. Merv was at his usual post at the cash register and looked up at me slowly with a blank stare. Though emotionless, his eyes were saying, the fuck did you pull my door open like that for? Dripping wet and panting, I looked at Merv and said, hey, sorry, is Frank here? Nah, he's not here today. Damn it, I thought. Uh, he told me he'd be here, I said, now thinking out loud. I don't know where that dude is, Mervin replied. Okay, um, can you give him something for me? I said, removing my demo tape from the front zipper pocket of my black East Pack. He extended his hand to take the tape, and when he did, he studied it for about five or six seconds. This you? He said. Yeah. What's his name? Mervin said as I witnessed what was possibly his first facial expression. That's funny. Thanks, I said, laughing nervously. Yeah, I'll give it to him. Thanks. Uh, I'm Josh, by the way. Merv, you go to G? Yeah, I said, but I'm from Durham. Cool, let's check it out. Merv left the cash register area and walked 20 feet over to the DJ booth. He popped my tape in, pressed play, and slowly faded out the house music that was playing in the store. While we sat there listening to all four songs in entirety, Merv kept his right thumb and index finger clutched to the fader on the black mixer that controlled the equipment. As the music played, he constantly inched the volume up and down slightly while nodding his head to each beat and lowering his eyebrows with a look of concentration. 
I had never seen any emotion from Mervyn, and I got the feeling he was into my music because every now and again he'd look at me and his head nods would go from simply following the music to nodding yes at me in an approving fashion. After the listening session, he asked if he could hold on to the tape. I agreed and we talked a little bit about the music. I told him that Melvin, or Nitro, which he went by at the time, had handled all of the production and he seemed familiar with his work. That's shit, he told me, and that made me happy. We spoke about people he was friends with and what they were doing, and he assured me that if I came around enough, I'd have the opportunity to meet them. From that day forth, Flavor Spot became my home outside of the musky dorm room where I slept. A few days later, I returned to Flavor Spot and heard familiar music blaring out the door as I came across Tate Street. When I arrived, Frank J had my demo tape blasting and was mixing in a different instrumental over my song. I walked in with confidence and Frank spotted me from across the room. Yo, Frank said as he danced in place to the music and pointed down repeatedly. His face looked like he had smelled a human corpse that had been pissed on, and that's how I knew he liked it. Two Flavor Spot crew members down and only a handful left to convince that I was the future of hip-hop music. Little by little, I met the entire crew. First there was Shane, Mervyn's younger brother. He was only about a year older than me and was the earliest incarnation of a hip-hop nerd. He was infatuated with hip-hop and though he had yet to find his niche, we became fast friends. We spent hours hanging at Flavor, sitting on the stairs to nowhere, while Shane cued me in on who was who. He took me to local hangouts, rap shows, recording studios, and even local radio stations where he would introduce me to all the on-air personalities, letting them know that I was worth listening to. It was with Shane's help that I garnered the connections necessary to establish my career as a local Greensboro artist, and I couldn't have asked for more. He didn't do it for his benefit, he did it for mine, and for no other reason than he believed in me. Over time, Shane explained that the nucleus of the Flavor Spot crew was the Busy Boys. The name rang a bell, but I was unfamiliar with their music and who they were. It turned out that they had a bit of local notoriety in the late 80s and early 90s and had released some music independently. One by one, I was introduced to and became friends with each member as well as their associates. I met Fly Eli Davis, the Busy Boys' former manager. I don't know if it was my personality, my music, my mutual love of polo attire, or a mixture of some or all of these, but Eli and I hit it off pretty quickly. He was jovial like me, but most of all, he was a genuine person. I loved playing him new music, and when we spoke, he always laughed at my jokes. If there were advice to give or a connection to share, Eli would offer anything that he could, and that alone was something that I always appreciated about him. Then there was Dana, aka Mixmaster D, aka Dana Lucci. He was the Busy Boys DJ and a fixture in the local scene. Dana loved my music and reaffirmed my belief that what I was doing sounded pretty good. We began linking up for studio sessions and I'd collaborate with him and his rap partner Flip, aka Selinsky. Our mutual respect for one another gave me the same feeling of camaraderie that I was accustomed to back in my hometown and fueled my spirit enough to keep me going in this foreign land. Billy Devour was one of the Busy Boys dancers, remember those? A now extinct, yet formerly integral part of the live hip-hop performance. As was true with Ah Sim, also a former dancer, these guys have music in their souls and often morph into other roles. It makes sense, they're used to the spotlight and generally have a great feel for the music. In Billy's case, he was making beats. Like his aforementioned crew members, he dug my raps and was very vocal about his support. At least once a month, Billy would ask if I would be his artist in the same way that I was unofficially Melvin's. 
His beats were good, but I wasn't looking for commitment. I was just happy to have another fan and another friend. Next there was Fnatic, the group's producer. His artist Omniscience had just been signed to a major label and had a promotional sampler tape floating around that was hosted by DJ Big Cap. R.I.P. I was enamored with the idea that two locals could obtain the coveted record deal, which to me was the ultimate unicorn. Fnatic was a character. Often he'd walk in the store and take his shirt off to showcase his abs. He had an ego, but he was always nice to me and supportive of my music, even asking me to rap on a song he was producing for a local R&B artist. It felt good to be on his radar, and knocking the verse out of the park helped me further the gospel of what's-his-name. And then there was Ski. Before my move to Greensboro, I didn't know who he was. I learned that he was one of the Busy Boys MCs, but that wasn't the impressive part. Can I get open? You know it. Hey, Jay, can I get open? You know it. Hey, yo, can I get open? You know it. You wanna flush down? Ski's about Sound familiar? After moderate local Busy Boys fame, Ski took a leap of faith and moved to New York City with dreams of hip-hop stardom. He joined a group called Original Flavor, who was managed by Damon Dash and is best known for their song Can I Get Open that featured a quick-tongued, unknown rapper named Jay-Z back in 1994. And though the group disbanded, Ski produced four songs on Jay's debut album Reasonable Doubt. This helped him parlay his beat-making talent into an actual career and got him work on many of the albums that were released in that era. I was obsessed with Reasonable Doubt at the time. It's arguably my favorite album ever made, and the thought of meeting someone who produced songs on it made me more excited than most things did. I had yet to meet him, but I knew I had to. He was the most successful figure in the history of North Carolina hip-hop, and in my mind, the key to my success. If I could get him on my side, there would be no stopping me. All I needed was the opportunity. 